0: Everything comes from God. Uh, it sounds a little snarky, a little like, you know, deal with it type. And that's not the intent of that uh, by any means. But this text does talk about head and headship and also where that comes from, ultimately from God himself. And so we're going to do the best we can with this. I want to think for a moment about last week. We really focused on 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, where Paul uh, had been making this argument and trying to deal with issues of should you or shouldn't you with respect to marriage and even eating customs and all that. And he kind of concludes in 1 Corinthians ten thirty one saying, whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And that's what we tried to spend most of our time on last week is what does that mean to do everything for the glory of God? That he's combined, as the uh, scriptures often do, we sing about God's glory. It seems kind of majestic and holy and, and unreachable. And yet, in the very act of eating and drinking, we can do that for the glory of God, bringing these two things together. I love how practical this is. Because for many people, if you're on the outside looking in, or if you've grown up in church sometimes, you think it's not very practical. But Paul says these things matter so much, you can eat and drink with God's glory in mind. So part of what we suggested, or at least began suggesting, is that this has to do with a motive of the heart. You know, why are we doing anything? And if we get the why right, then it affects the how. If we're doing something for the glory of God, even eating and drinking, how we do it is informed by that reality. So when we start doing eating, you know, we're eating and drinking, we're doing it with God's glory in mind. We can do it in a way that's giving him glory, that's in accord with how he's designed us. So if you're going to go and become gluttonous and just, I I remember in college, and look, I understand there's a reason why this happens. There was a place that had chicken wings for five bucks on Saturday mornings as much as you could eat. And we would would not eat for a day (laughs) so that we could go, five bucks, that's a lot of money, and we could go and we would stuff ourselves with we would create a pile of chicken wings that looked like uh, you know Mount St Helens or something like that too it, you know eruption you know type thing too and okay i get that but probably not Totally glorifying God when it comes to self-control issues, or you know, uh, just being a little bit prudent and that kind of thing. But that's kind of the way, maybe, of of that age as well. But as as we grow up, and and Paul has said, look, you as a church to the Corinthians, you're immature. So I need to kind of grow you up in the Lord, and part of that is eating and drinking even for the glory of God, and that translates to wherever you are in life. If you're a student. And you're doing math. You can actually do that for the glory of God. It's not this kind of thing out there where you're, you're raised up into the third heavens. And all of a sudden the Pythagorean theorem, theorem is like angelic. <laughs> but when you do it, applying the mind that God gave you to the best of your ability. Doing it with integrity. Helping somebody else maybe. Who isn't as good at it as you are. Those things all can be done for the glory of God. That translates to to being a parent, to being a a worker in wherever office space you might be, to being an athlete. It doesn't matter. You can do it all for the glory of God. And that's where Paul has been driving us for a while. The why for God's glory does affect the how. And that has carryover application for the text today. The word glory is used several times here because we want God to be glorified. And we need to consider the how, not only in those other spheres, but even in the context of worship, which is what Paul is going to be addressing for the next little while. Now, look, this text is challenging. I haven't even read it. I'm not trying to avoid it. I'm going to get to it. But I think it's maybe easier just to do a little bit at a time and try to get the sense of it. But just to give you an idea of the waters we're wading in, here's what one commentator says. This passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text of comparable length in the New Testament. You can look up opaque later. (laughs) A survey of the history of interpretation reveals how many different exegetical options there are for a myriad of questions and should inspire a fair measure of tentativeness, on the part of the interpreter. So, let's do the best we can with that in mind. It's a challenging text, all right? Here's what we read first. In 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verses 2 through 3. I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the teachings, just as I passed them on to you. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So this is, this is a passage where Paul is talking about headship and the word kephale in the Greek is used there multiple times, talking about a structure in an order where the, the head is the, the top of, of these things too. And, uh, and, and how are we supposed to understand this? Well, thankfully, he hasn't left us completely alone. Now, I think part of what's hard about this text is at least two things. Number one, there's a vast cultural difference here. There, are, there were things happening in the city of Corinth that don't typically happen in modern-day United States of America. Maybe in some places, too, but in our, our context, this is greatly removed from what we typically have now. So, you know, this text, as you're reading it, you're thinking, does this mean no mullets allowed in church? <laughs> or should we all go, Sinead O'Connor, shave our heads if we're women, that kind of thing, too? No, I don't, that doesn't appear to be what it's saying. Um, and, and, and so that's one of the challenges. The other here is it appears to devalue women. I think you can come away from a text like this and think women are second rate. And that is not the message that I believe is intended here to the original audience or to us. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. And I'll show you how I think that is being said in the text as well. So with that in mind, here we talk about this headship issue. And I'm grateful that Paul effectively gives us what I would call a Trinitarian filter for headship. And here's some really fancy words. Along with opaque you can add ontological to your list. Those of you who may be taking a philosophy course, ontology is the study of the essence of something. Ontological reality. And it's actually something that theologians have used to describe the Godhead for many years. There's equality. One God in three persons. But there's a functional submission within that reality. So in other words... Uh, If you think of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're co-equal in glory and in majesty, but there is a functional submission, a mutual submission, but a functional one among the Godhead themselves. Uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's ontological equality. They're all God in essence, but they do have some functional differences, That are displayed. And so here we look at the Trinity, and Paul is trying to say as we try to grasp this relationship of men and women and what it looks like in worship and in life too, we have to start with the Trinity. Because if you don't start there, if you start with kind of a man made structure, you're going to go off kilter, which is what I think happens a lot of the time by my observation. And to us, it makes sense. Submission and equality do not seem simultaneously possible. That's a hard thing for us to sometimes grasp. Although we do have examples of that even in our places of employment. I'm guessing a lot of you, maybe, maybe you're self-employed and you have people working for you. But if you have a boss or something, you get a sense of structure and order. But just because you're reporting to that person in a structure or a functionality sort of way doesn't mean that you're less than they are. And so is the case here too. And in fact, Paul's injunction that he gives later to husbands and wives, just to think about a more specific category of men and women, unpacks something very similar to what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians. I don't have this in front of you, but if you want to turn with me, and I recommend you do, to Ephesians chapter 5. Some of you will be familiar with this if you're church, the church-going type or have been to a wedding recently, because this is often read at weddings as well. But with this backdrop in mind, think about what Paul says to this church in Ephesus. And we'll we'll start in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. So there's similar language here. There's a headship type of thing, a submission there too. And I think sometimes if you've got, like I have, I have my Bible here and it says wives and husbands as a category in verse 22, which I think is interesting because it might have been put up one above there in verse 21, which starts out, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's a mutual submission that's occurring here. And yet Paul does say, "Wives submit to your husbands because the husband is the head of the wife, just like Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior." And that may be somewhat of a stumbling block. I think some of this probably, even contextually, wasn't too difficult as Paul was writing this because he had some cutting edge views on men and women, and and Jesus did too for his time. But if we come here to the 21st century and, and all the issues circling around us too, this can raise the hackles a little bit. Wives, submit to your husbands. Look what it goes on to say. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we, are members of his body. This is a lot of language that he's going to use in 1 Corinthians 12 coming up too. And really next week. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. That's pretty spectacular. Husbands, your job description is to love your wives. What does it look like? Lay your life down for her. You give yourself up for your bride. You lay aside your preferences for her good. In fact, it's a stark image here. Not only is your desire to do everything, to, to present her in a way that is holy and pure and, and radiant, but you do it to the point of giving yourself up for her. That's your job description. So when Paul talks about this, this idea of, say, functional submission, if you're a man, if you're a husband, then this, this is not intended, for example, to give you extra privilege but extra responsibility and if you're using it for extra privilege, you've completely misunderstood your role and you've surrendered so much in the process. And this, this, this idea of laying yourself down, that's what love looks like in the context of marriage. And my, my, my guess is that as you do that, husbands, and sacrifice yourself on behalf of your wife, this word... Submission may become a little less of a stumbling block because this person's pouring themselves out for you. Now, the reason it is a stumbling block is because husbands have done a very lousy job of meeting this standard. And like so many texts in the Bible, it becomes then a battering ram or a billy club to bat around somebody. And it's wrong. It's abusive. It's not right. And we have to repent of where we've failed to do this. You haven't loved your life, your wife, like Christ loved the church. You need to repent today. Extra responsibility, love your wife. That's, that's a heavy burden to bear, but also a great joy and a great privilege. So when Paul says, I want you to realize the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman's man, the head of Christ is God, that is a deep responsibility. Here's the head of Christ is God, and he's saying that man in relation to woman has a similar relationship. And it's not meant, it seems to me, because the very nature of it is Trinitarian, to be used in any way except for mutual submission and love. Now he goes on in verses 4 through 6 to start saying things that seem very odd to us. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or, or shaved off, She should cover her head. What in the world is going on here? (laughs) Now, maybe some of you are familiar with a really, another fancy term called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of interpreting scripture. Yes, people view it as a science. Did you know theology was the queen of the sciences until the 1700s? It was actually viewed as a science because part of it is, Wow, this is a complex book. There are 66 books. It's written by 40, over 40 authors, spanning thousands of years. And then you open it up, and you get ourselves into Corinth, thousands of years ago, a letter that we're reading today as modern readers. And the distance is incredible. So hermeneutics does it. What it's supposed to do is take all of that into consideration. What's the context? What's the original message? What's the original intent? How is this to be read in a way that's faithful to the text? And in confusing parts, sometimes we need to look the clear parts. If you take a confusing passage and make it your life verse, that's bad hermeneutics. <laughs> I remember the prayer of Jabez. You remember the prayer of Jabez for a while everybody was like prayer of Jabez expand my territory expand my territory and I read I think in the Onion which was a satirical Christian publication that Jabez's neighbor kept saying God stop answering Jabez's prayer. <laughs> He's taking all my territory. So you you take the whole the whole counsel of God the whole message and it helps you understand some of the particulars that are going on, and some of the less clear parts, then you use more clear parts. And part of the task of somebody in my role is to do the exegesis. That is, get to the message, uh, draw it out, and then try to get through those cultural barriers and say, here's what it means on the principle level. Although it looks a little different for us now, this is what the intent was and how we apply it today. And you can see, based on this guy, that he said, that's still not easy to do. So a little bit of grace here. As I try to do the best I can with this, here's my attempt at trying to explain it to you. And what I think Paul is really thrusting, or what what his main thrust is. Here's what I would suggest is happening. Paul is continuing to argue that you must remove any stumbling blocks. Any stumbling blocks at all. In the context of worship as well. In fact... A stumbling block that would keep others from seeing the gospel. That's what he's saying. Keep the gospel central. And, and these kind of cultural practices then, he's been talking about that already. We, we talked about food, sacrifice to idols. Remember, not, not all, some of us here know what that is. Some of us know what it's like to have food sacrificed to an idol given to us. Many of us don't. For the many of us who don't, you read that passage, you're like, what are you talking about? And so we tried to show the principle under there. Remove any stumbling block. When you do an act, you're thinking about how it affects somebody else. And now as he talks about corporate worship, he's doing the same thing. And I think he's doing the same thing because he's already been doing it, and he'll do it again. And he's saying, think not only about how your actions affect those who are inside the household of God, those who say, yes, I'm on board with Christ as Lord, but those who come into your presence as well and who maybe aren't. And saying, what is this whole thing about? Because he's transitioning here to the glory of God and the glory of man, the glory of woman, and a practice that was cultural in that day where people would wear head coverings or not. Now, how in the world does that really get at what is being said here? A cultural tradition of the day was for women in that context to wear veils. And some argue that that was in contrast to the prostitution trade, which did not. And they're in a Corinth, and there's a lot of idolatry, and some of that strays into those areas. And apparently, you would know that somebody was a prostitute if they didn't have a veil on their head. Now that's one, one interpretation of it, seems to fit the context, so when you come into the house of God, you don't want to create a stumbling block to somebody. <laughs> you know, and, and bells and whistles are going off by everybody like, whoa, what's going on here? And in the same way for man, this whole idea of covering your head had actually become more of a religious tradition that could be a stumbling block as well. This started apparently, if you remember when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments and there was a glow on his head. And apparently in Jewish history and rabbinical practice, that's when men started putting head coverings on to kind of liken the fact that they're doing something in the presence of God. And it, it, it could be, at least this is what some argue, and I think there's some merit to it, that that had to become a religious practice that could be a stumbling block. See, if you don't have that on your head, then you're not right with God. And Paul spends a lot of time in his ministry trying to say, no, it's not circumcision or non-circumcision. None of this stuff is what really matters. It's your heart trusting in Christ, the faith that you bring to the table. That's what matters most. And you see him wrestling with, how do I do that? Maybe I have this person circumcised because a group of people I'm going to won't even listen to my message unless he is. That's what he does in one case. In another case, he says, no, don't do it. There's some flexibility. There's some freedom, as we've said. There's some wisdom needed in this entire process. And so Paul, in this case, would be suggesting for men that they think about, how are my religious traditions keeping people from hearing the gospel? And for women, maybe how is my presentation a stumbling block? So some would say that this is point he's trying to get at is the issue of just even in that case chastity and modesty I love what C.S. Lewis says uh, about this in mere Christianity with modesty a real desire to believe all the good you can of others and to make others as comfortable as you can will solve most of the problems I'll read that again A real desire to believe all the good you can of others and to make others as comfortable as you can will solve most of the problems with modesty. In other words, if you're in our cultural day, you look at somebody and say, ooh, a little skimpy. You can, believing the best you possibly can about that person is going to (laughs) help. And on the other hand, if your framework is, how can I present myself in a way that doesn't cause others to feel uncomfortable, that will help also. Now let me say that's a rather mature viewpoint. And teenagers aren't often in the maturity category. This becomes an issue of discourse and talk and sometimes contention and frustration. But that is the goal here that he seems to be delivering in a similar way. Paul addresses men in a different way but makes the same point. The religious traditions of wearing a covering are actually serving to veil the gospel. And... Here's why I think some of that's going on. If you turn again to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I don't have this up again, but I'm forcing you to turn or to find this in your Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. Listen to this language with everything in 1 Corinthians in mind. Now, if the ministry that brought death, starting in verse 7, which was engraved in letters letters on stone, came with glory... So that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with this surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's a lot of glory going on in that passage. And he said, that's what we've been talking about, doing everything for the glory of God, man the glory of God, woman the glory of man. And Paul is writing to the same people here, trying to explain to them, maybe even after this head covering thing, look, you still don't get it maybe. We all, when when your eyes are open to the reality, Christ is your glory. There is no need anymore for these cultural practices that, imitate it because that's just a picture of the substance like the Old Testament was, but you've got the real thing. He actually says that Christ is our glory in another text. So it seems to me as best as I can do with this that he's saying the same thing. Remove any stumbling blocks. Keep the gospel central. And at times it may mean you need to consider why am I doing this practice or do I need to adopt something so it's not a stumbling block for anybody else. And he's taking these things to the Corinthian church. And it seems to me driving home the glory of the new covenant. Keep the gospel central. That matters a lot to Paul. Keep the gospel central. Keep the gospel central. Let's get back to these things. But it does inform the way that we conduct ourselves. And he goes on to talk in verses 7 through 10 a little bit more about this. And there's still some more language of headship. And in verse 7, then he says, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And for this reason and because of the angels... And I'm not even going to try to guess what that means, by the way. I think it meant something to them I can't figure out. It's either hearkening back to Genesis 6, some people say, or Isaiah 40, or um, just the fact that angels are among us and observing. I don't really know, but I know that it doesn't change the meaning of this text. So you can do your own work on that as well. And because of the angels, he says, maybe some conversation they'd had before that makes sense to them. The woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Now, it's interesting here because Paul, what he does is he talks about this structure and even roles that are rooted in creation. And because it's rooted in creation, we're going to look back at that for a second. Any glory that you happen to have is derivative. See, everything comes from God, right? So if you have any sense of glory or any sense of authority, it's derivative. I, I said derivative glory, derivative glory. That's. Not meant to be there. Derivative authority is the second thing or the first. Any authority you have doesn't come from you. It's kind of like Deuteronomy chapter 8, right? When these people get all these houses and everything, they said, Look at what we've done. And Moses says, What? You just took what God gave you. It comes from Him, ultimately. The capacity, the time when you were born. You don't think that just because you have a big house, lots of cars, and tons of mules or whatever, this is all because of you. God's the one who's given you the capacity to do that. And the temptation is for us to think that we did. No, this comes from God. Same thing in these issues, too, of man and woman. Whoever you are, did you really control that? You just kind of showed up. <laughs> and any glory or authority you have is derivative. But Paul is driving us here back to creation. It's interesting. Genesis chapter 1, it begins, Bereshit bara Elohim. Bereshit means, translates literally, at the head. That's the first few words of the Bible. And then you start reading that God created everything. At the head, at the beginning of everything. He created. And he creates, you know, everything that we see. And then the pinnacle of his creation is man. On that last day before taking a rest, he creates Man, Adam. Then there's an order to that creation as well and a structure that uh, underscores roles without sacrificing value or dignity. Look back at Genesis chapter 2. See, I'm doing it again. And it used to be that you'd hear a lot more flipping pages. Now it's, you know, silent internet connections that I think, you know, could lead you to... uh, be distracted. So focus on Genesis two eighteen to 25, just for a moment with me, because Paul looks back at the creation, and there we read in 18, verse 18, the Lord, God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Mm-hmm. That word helper is as there. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. I mean, this guy was pretty creative. A lot of things to name. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. No ezer, no suitable ezer. So all these animals come, and none of them quite fit the man perfectly. No suitable helper. For one reason or another. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place of flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. So actually in terms of source and order, the, the man created first and then woman from the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. My Hebrew professor, who is an Old Testament scholar, summarizes that entire phrase with, Wow! <laughs> Apparently, in the Hebrew, it comes across like, Woo! Oh, <laughs> sort of like this, because there are all these animals, and then, Here comes a woman, and Woo! That seems like a good fit. This is incredible. This is my glory. You see, this is something spectacular. Wow. For this reason, the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. They will come on flesh. So back here in Genesis chapter 2, we see this whole beginning, at least from the Bible's perspective, of, of this kind of distinction here of male and female and, and the man and the woman and even just the order that's happening. Man did not come from woman but woman from man, neither was man created from woman, but woman from man. In Genesis three sixteen we see the upset of that structure. See, this is a creation reality and then sin. See, creation, beautiful, and then sin. Sin messes everything up. I mean it distorts, it perverts, it twists, it misaligns, it hurts. And so in Genesis 3.16, your desire will be for your husband. He'll rule over you. It's the battle of the sexes right back there as a result of sin. It wasn't supposed to be that way. It was kind of a reflection of the trinity of mutual submission and, and, and beauty and wonder and discovering each other's glory. And, and, and then we get what we got. And everything is just turned upside down. I think it gives fuel, not just to, to, to those kind of problems that you can imagine in your own head, but to a distortion of the positives. So, you know, you were, a woman is Ezer, helper. And that may rankle again some, but just, just consider for a moment that God himself is called Ezer. Multiple times throughout scripture. Here's just a few of them. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. And our shield. He's our ezer. God is our refuge and strength. The very present help in trouble. He's our ezer. Behold, God is my helper. My ezer. The Lord is the upholder of my life. You, Lord, have helped me. You've Ezered me (laughs) and comforted me. If the Lord had not been my help, my ezer, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. That's just one of a whole host of verses where God calls himself as heir. This is not a diminished role. This is one that we cherish and value. But sin tends to distort that. And it sounds negative. Now, verses 11 and 12, and we'll finish here. Because Paul goes on to talk a little bit in a way that I I hope is encouraging to you. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So, in the words of said the sloth, she completes you. You complete me, right? There is an interdependence here. We complete each other. God has designed us to be interdependent. In creating man and woman, God provided a structure that celebrates distinctions, affirms mutual dignity, and highlights interdependence. Everything comes from God, and his creation is good. In fact, it's good, good, but since tainted what is good. And so when we come to a text like this, I don't know if I've given any more clarity to it. It's, it's a challenging text, but I, I do know that Paul's intent for us is to kind of look back at the creation and see how things ought to be and to take some of the principles that he's given us and apply them even in the context of worship. That's sort of where we've tried to get. And I want to say just talk uh, as a man to wom- women uh, for just just a, a couple of moments In sort of a little bit of confession booth style. Now, some of you who have read Blue Like Jazz before, I've referenced it. Um, This this guy goes to a college campus out in Portland, Oregon, one of the most liberal college campuses that sponsors for a weekend use of drugs, as many drugs as you can have, and they bring medical people around and police to try to contain some of the fallout from it. But it's a celebration of autonomy. And uh, this guy, he's a Christian. He goes on to the campus. And he's, he's enrolled as a student. And uh, he decides to set up a, a confession booth. So it says confession booth, right? And people start coming in. And they begin to say, because they feel guilty or whatever, start t- confessing their sins. He says, stop, stop, stop. This confession booth isn't for you to confess your sins to me. It's for me to confess the church's sins to you. And he starts saying, well, we're sorry for And he apologizes for all this too. So that's a little twist on confession booths there. Can you imagine those of you who grew up Catholic, maybe for Father, forgive me. Hold on. Stop right there. I'm going to start talking to you about my sins. It's Kind of flip the script a little bit. So I know I don't speak for all men everywhere. Nobody can possibly do that, I suppose. But I do want to say to the women, I'm sorry for the church undervaluing you. I'm sorry. I am sorry for men treating you as only objects of pleasure. At times, I'm sorry for the silent abuse that you may take for fear of not being believed. I'm sorry for harsh words, belittling looks, foolish comments that devalue your worth or your intelligence or your contributions. I am sorry for the abuse of authority. And believe me, it exists. And if it exists here, please confess that sin. You have been undervalued and mistreated. And oftentimes, in the name of somebody who says they're in Ephesians 5, a man. I'm sorry for that. You are not second rate. You are not less than. You are not insignificant. You are made in God's image, you are God's glory. You are as heir, your man's glory, your daughters of God. And in Christ, you are full heirs with equal rights to any man. And husbands, will you rise to the challenge to love your bride as Christ loved the church? I don't know how to apply that any other way than principially, laying your lives down for the bride that God has given you. Men, will you align your view of women with God's and treat them with integrity and dignity? Teenage boys, will you seek to honor girls as those precious to the Lord, sisters in Christ, and start now to learn what it means to be servant leaders. That needs to be our glory. If we're doing that, I don't think a text like this is going to be a problem. It won't be a stumbling block. It'll be an opportunity to say, God has created something good. Let's image that, even in our treatment of each other and certainly in our worship. You know, Paul does something amazing, and I know for those of you who think he's a misogynist, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, I hope this comes to bear a little bit about his image of the value of women. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise. You have inherited the greatest thing of all women. And men, we stand in the same, same camp. We're no better. We're sinners saved by grace. And forgive us, women, for where we fail to acknowledge that or where we've been injurious to you but realize that you are valuable and that your inheritance is the same as any man. And we need to do a better job, men, of living that out. Father, I uh, ask forgiveness, uh, even for myself, for ways of thinking about women that don't align with your word. And for women here who've been hurt, we pray that you would be there as there and their help in times of trouble, and that they would see the beauty of the gospel, even in the midst of ashes, that somehow beauty would come from it, not dismissing pain and hurt, but recognizing that there is hope because of Christ, who died for the sins that have been committed against them. Thanks for the hope of the gospel. Help us as a church to remove any barrier, any stumbling block that gets in the way. We want to be laser-focused on Christ and lean into even the structures you've put in place that some, somehow because of our society or our sin, seem misguided, we know they're not. They're created for things that are beautiful. That's what we desire. And so we, we need clarity for what that looks like, and we want to handle this with integrity and with grace and with forgiveness. So where that's needed, Father, may we both extend it and receive it afresh. And if we've been offenders, may we be convicted and quick, quick to go and say, I'm sorry. Make us a repentant church. We don't have to fear what that looks like because we're accepted by Christ. In fact, we won't grow out of immaturity until we start doing these things. So let your spirit have his way, we know that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So where we feel shackled or in bondage, we cast that aside and pray for it in Christ's name. Amen.